Good morning and welcome to Rising. Uh, we hope everyone had a great MLK day and a long weekend for those of you who had off. Brianna, how was your mini vacation? It was great. I spent much of it reading the colorful tweets about the new commemorative uh, MLK statue that yes. was unveiled in Boston. We are going to talk about that <laughs> later in the show. I can't wait. I can Also, we have to rush through the show today so I can watch the next trailer for the next season of The Mandalorian, which I'm very excited for. Oh, I didn't even know about that. Just drop. We can watch it as soon as we finish the show. Okay, look forward to that as well. <laughs> All right, what's going on? Well, we obviously have um, a lot to talk about. Teddy Schleifer will be here to tell us about Sam Bakeman Freed's lonely life in Palo Alto and any new details on that particular saga. Robbie and I will also give you an update on the Idaho murders case. But first, we have some friends joining us today at the top of the show, former special assistant to President Biden and former press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden, Michael LaRosa, is here with us, as well as the founder of the Red Renaissance Pack and radio talk show host, Kimberly Klasik. Welcome to you both. So all anyone is talking about right now is President Biden's classified document scandal after Republican lawmakers called for visitor logs of Biden's Delaware home, where a second batch of classified documents were found. The White House Counsel's Office released a statement yesterday saying that there were no logs, quote, like every president across decades of modern history, his personal residence is personal. Biden is currently facing a special counsel investigation into his handling of classified documents. Michael, let's start with you. Um, you know, what, uh, how, how do, you, do you think they're handling this appropriately? I gather that Biden is probably frustrated at this. He wanted to, I know he wanted to announce his likely bid for a second term, and this is taking the oxygen out of that. Um, how should they handle it? Sure. So I think right now the North Star, according to what I'm watching, what everybody's watching, um, and the way they're handling this is that their North Star is the law, right? And sometimes the, the law, following the law, is not always convenient to the public relations strategy. But the legal strategy is what is driving uh, the comp strategy. And sometimes it's just, like I said, just not convenient for one another. Would they love, you know, James Carville said something back in 92, speed kills, get it all out, get it all out fast, take some short-term pains for long-term gain. It, it doesn't seem like the communications shop is able to do that, not because they don't want to, but because their legal strategy is driving the comp strategy, mm -hmm. meaning the lawyers are saying, we're following the law, and the law means turn it over as soon as you find it. Well, Kimberly, what do you make of this? Because obviously the hypocrisy, as it were, stems from the fact that Donald Trump is in the situation, and when Donald Trump had these outstanding documents, the narrative from the liberal media and politicos was all about how this was deeply irresponsible. Biden says, how could anybody ever do this? This is a national security issue. And there was what some perceived at the time to be some degree of hyperbole. Now that the shoe was on the other foot, do you accept the rationale that there are meaningful differences between what has happened with Joe Biden and what happened with Donald Trump last year? Well, I think we're at this point where you're right, it is very hypocritical, right? We're now playing by the Democrats' rules. Uh, when Mar-a-Lago was raided and we were told that there were classified documents there, uh, everybody got very upset about it. You had many Democrats, even on Capitol Hill, saying that this has to be done uh, in, a, in an expeditious way and we got to figure out what's there and he's got to cooperate and all this other stuff. And that was a full-on raid. When it comes to President Biden, apparently they knew about the classified documents prior to the midterm elections. It happened on November 2nd. So I had many questions on who knew what and when. And so, you know, if this is election interference, I think that's another piece of this that people are not talking about. We also found out that there were more documents found on December 20th. Now, that second batch of documents, that should have been revealed. We found out about everything in the public here in January. 
but it was a slow drip and a slow rollout. And, you know, the one thing about Mar-a-Lago is there is a record of everyone that comes to that residence. I've been there multiple times. You have to tell them who you are. They do background checks. Yes, Wilmington, Delaware, that is Biden's personal residence. And I don't expect him to have a log of the people that visit him at his home. But those are the differences. What, oh what would you say to that? Mar-a-Lago is a country club, right? It's a business. Uh, Trump Tower is an apartment complex. It's a business. His house in Bedminster, there's no logs there. There's no logs at Rehoboth. There's no logs at uh, in Wilmington. Um, there's logs at Camp David. There are logs at the White House. They're very different. Um, in terms of election interference. Yeah, I think that's what well, yeah, What about the fact that the documents were apparently found right before the election? I think that's probably the biggest issue here mm-hmm. from a, you know sure. unfair treatment of, versus well, the Trump situation. Well, the reason why it seems that way is because one president's response was to fight and not turn mm. over the documents for over a year. That's why there was a raid. There's no raid in Greenville because they keep saying, take them. We don't want them. Mm-hmm. We found them. We don't want them. There is a model way to respond to a discovery of classified information. And the Biden team is doing it by the law. The other president has been known to not really care much about following the law. If he did, he would have turned them over, but he thinks they're his. So for a year, he defied a subpoena, he defied DOJ, he defied the archives, and he was raided. Yeah, Kimberly, how would you respond to that? Because I think that's probably a, a fair point you know, from the other side. The reason there's been no raid of Biden properties is because the documents were given back or attempted to give back. Trump held onto the documents, was combative with the agencies that wanted them, and that's the reason there was a raid. Now, you can still say how the raid was carried out was, you know, not was was not necessarily how it was done. I, I think it's probably characteristic of these kinds of raids in general, which I have all sorts of criticisms of. But that's why it's different. That's why there was no raid of, uh, of, of Biden's, you know, properties. Yeah, I respectfully disagree with that uh, notion. You know, look, President Trump was the president when he had those documents and he had the ability to declassify. He thought that they were, you know, rightfully, you know, his to take with him. Uh, look, if you want some documents from Mar-a-Lago, I think, you know, you go and pick them up. You know, you don't wait for him to send them to you. The difference, again, is that President Biden, even if he was forthcoming, uh, think about it. These documents were unsecured in his garage next to his Corvette, right? I mean, they should have went immediately and started searching his properties to find out there were more classified documents, and they didn't do that, right? They found one batch on November 2nd, another batch on December 20th, and then we learned more just this past weekend here in January. And so, yes, he might be cooperative, but why didn't the uh, DOJ say, you know what, there's a lot of classified evidence here. Maybe we should go and take a look for ourselves. I'm not saying you have to do it in a raid type of manner, uh, but you should go and send some agents out there to collect any more information that could put us at national security risk. Kimberly, you point out that Trump was the president and he had the ability to declassify documents, but many people have made the point that the ability to declassify documents is not the same thing as actually declassifying documents. And there was a lot of pushback from liberals around the idea that Donald Trump seemed to be implying that if he just thought thought about declassifying the documents or waved his hands over the paper in kind of like a, a magical uh, spell t- sort of way, that that would have the effect that he wanted, as though his, like, mens rea would attach to whatever documents have to be in his possession. You know, do you think at a certain point there has to be some responsibility that conservatives have and say, look, the raid would not have happened if Donald Trump, frankly, had just been more cooperative with the investigation in a way that is meaningfully different than what's going on with uh, Joe Biden. 
look, I think we're not even privy to all the information, to be honest with you. And that becomes and that's when it comes to President Trump and President Biden. We don't know how forthcoming President Biden was. We don't know how forthcoming President Trump was. And just the opposite. Right. We're basing this off of media rumors and innuendos. And so we don't exactly know what happened. Uh, but what we do know is that these documents were found on President Biden's property prior to the midterm elections. Somebody sat on it and I want to know who sat on it. And if it was somebody in the DOJ and higher up close to Merrick Garland or him himself, I think that person should resign. Because, again, that information should have been public as soon as those classified documents were discovered. Was the Trump information well, immediately public? No, it wasn't. He had the, the DOJ, the archives were fighting with him, subpoenaing him, arguing with them and his lawyers for I, over a year. And that wasn't, so the press I, wasn't privy to that. We weren't public exactly. privy to that until and that, the raid. that's not how the law works. That's not how DOJ conducts investigations. The investigations are not conducted in the press for the same reason why the Trump DOJ under uh, uh, Bill Barr, um, no, we didn't know during the election that Hunter Biden was already under federal investigation. Mm. He's been under federal investigation since 2018. Mm. That's not how they conduct uh legal investigations well, in our country. Well, conservative might say that that's another no. example of liberal bias and that when liberals are being investigated, it it's was, quiet. When Trump, it's a raid. He was being investigated by the Trump administration, mm. by a Trump-appointed U.S. Mm. attorney in Delaware. Mm -hmm. And everybody in Trump's DOJ, at least the Bill, Bill Barr, at least, knew about it. Mm. Well, speaking of President Trump, uh, he weighed in on the new revelations over the weekend, writing, quote, the White House just announced that there are no logs or information of any kind on visitors to the Wilmington House and flimsy, unlocked and unsecured, but now very famous garage. Maybe they are smarter than we think. This is one of seemingly many places where highly classified documents are stored in a big pile on the damp floor. Mar-a-Lago is a highly secured facility with security cameras all over the place and watched over by staff and our great secret service, I have info on everyone. And while members of the president's party have largely downplayed the severity of the mishandled documents, Representative Ilhan Omar told MSNBC last week, quote, I'm glad there is a special prosecutor that's been appointed to investigate this because anytime there is a deviance in regards to security protocol, that should be taken seriously. It should be investigated. Uh, Kimberly, you said you visited um, Mar-a-Lago. What do you think Trump meant there by I have records of on everyone, I have files of everyone. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so to actually get onto the property of Mar-a-Lago, you have to submit uh, your social security number and so much information prior to the date that you're supposed to arrive. So they do. He has information on absolutely everyone that comes to that property, and he is correct in that. But again, I will say, I don't expect Biden to have information on people that come to his personal residence in Wilmington. I don't think that's fair to say that, right? I don't keep documents on people that visit me at my house. But I will say also that, you know, earlier, I think Michael was talking about this is not how DOJ does investigations, meaning in the public. I mean, the Russian collusion hoax, January 6th committee, all of this is being done with uh, you know, the public eyes watching. And we still haven't gotten to the bottom of this, you know, the so-called crime that President Trump supposedly committed. And so, you know, this is how they do investigations. They do them very publicly when they want to fit a certain narrative. And again, Republicans are attacked in a public violent way and liberals do not have you know what we have coming at us that's just not true robert Mueller conducted his investigation in private in secret and he delivered a report to congress and testified about it that's how we knew well, about what was being investigated during russian well, I, what would you say i, I guess I there's there seems to be a lot more um leaking and press involvement when it's a republican scandal and a lot more 
behind closed. It's behind closed doors when it's a Democrat. Was there leaking with respect to the, uh, the Donald Trump document scandal? In general, I think that's what Kimberly was Now, saying. I know I'm a little bit older than you, but <laughs> as we a— covered that. As, as, started, you, as, were, you were as, referencing political events as, I've never heard of. As somebody who's inspired to go into politics by, by Bill Clinton and watched the 90s very closely, um, I encourage you to go back and uh, read more about the, the Ken Starr investigation into Whitewater, into Monica, no, into, if, into Certainly for that time period, but that was— <laughs> There was, was a as lot said, of that was leaking. a long time. There was a lot of leaking. No, no, no. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> well, 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 is, a, a final question for you, Kimberly. Do you, do you give Ilhan Omar some credit here for seemingly being pretty even-handed about this? Are you surprised that she said, yeah, there should be investigation, there should be transparency? Is, is, that, a, is that a point for the left flank of the Democratic Party, being even-handed with respect to Joe Biden? No, I think she's, you know, she's making a comment that many people are making. I mean, I, I read the entire comments that she made, the entire— uh, interview that she had. And she's basically saying, look, President Biden's cooperating. President Trump is a criminal. She's still saying those things. I don't respect a lot of what she has to say. But again, a lot of this for me personally comes back to the fact that the documents were found before the midterm elections. And I want to know exactly who sat on them and decided not to reveal it. Well, All right, last word, Michael. The good news is we have two special prosecutors who are going to lay out exactly what took place, the right approach and the wrong approach. Both prosecutors worked for President Trump. Mm. All right. Well, Michael LaRosa, Kimberly Klasick, thank you both for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And next up, uh, podcast giant Joe Rogan believes Biden's own team is trying to get rid of him before 2024 by uncovering mishandled classified documents. We'll give you our takes on that when Rising returns. Stay with us. Well, Joe Rogan has his own theory on the timing of revelations that classified documents were found at President Biden's private offices. Let's watch. I'm, they're trying to get rid of him. Yeah. That would, yeah. My guess would be they're trying to get rid of him. If all of a sudden they're, his own aides are sending these, instead of like taking these classified documents, which you have located, yeah. and go, well, let's not do that again, and f locking them up somewhere. His own aides? Self-reporting. Dude. On, that dude. sounds sus. Meanwhile, before the long weekend, Fox News' Peter Ducey pressed the commander-in-chief on his admission that materials were found in the garage of Biden's Delaware home near one of his Corvettes. Let's watch. President, okay. classified, classified material next to your Corvette? What were you thinking? Let me, uh, look, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. So but at any rate, yes, as well as my Corvette. Back with us to discuss is former special assistant to President Biden and former press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden, Michael LaRosa, as well as founder of the Red Renaissance Pack and radio talk show host, Kimberly Klasick. Welcome to you both. Thanks. <laughs> All right, Michael, let's start with you. Look, I, I understand the sensational nature of talking about the Corvette, and I don't think it's really about it being in the garage per se. But Democrats did make a really big deal mm -hmm. of the fact that it was really negligent for Donald Trump to lose track of these documents in the first place. Sure. That compounded with the fact that there is a, you know, to, to Joe Rogan's point, this is a, a bad story, the timing of it, the idea that it might have been held from before midterms. What do you make of this argument that, it, in fact, it is reflective of his own 
campaign, his own party turning its back on Biden and trying to dissuade him from, from launching a, a re-election campaign. <laughs> I, I mean, the last time I had to respond to Joe Rogan was when he was saying there was a red wave coming. Uh, and so I don't know where he, he gathers his evidence for his theories, but uh, I mean, they're, they're entertaining. Um, again, like, I don't know if it's ever been reported that the former president takes the law very seriously. But when Biden ran for president, when he was elected, he was determined to set a higher standard. He's always lived by that his entire career. He's a man of integrity. Nobody, nobody has ever questioned, actually, his integrity or what's in his heart. Well, it, it is Michael. irresponsible, and he's going to have to eat those words to have classified information. But your script said it best, found. He didn't know they were there. Okay, Michael, I mean, I think a lot of people would say there's a question about his integrity in a lot of different ways. Where? There are people who are very <laughs> chagrined about some of the statements that he made about right segregation here. in the 70s. <laughs> there are people who are, don't love that he eulogized segregationist Trent, uh, 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 Strom Thurmond. There are people who are uh, point to his hypocrisy about the busing issues in the 1970s. There are people who are frustrated that there are things that he promised on the campaign trail that have not come to fruition that he could have done by executive order, policy, like canceling student debt. Policy disagreements are totally and, fair. And there were, I gotta say, totally a series of Me Too allegations made at the beginning of the 2019 season that his own VP, President, uh, Vice President Kamala Kamala Harris said that she believed those eight women at the time. So I don't mean to bring all of that into the, the mm -hmm. this particular issue, mm -hmm. but the idea that um, Joe Biden is very truthy is something I think that is a propaganda of sorts from the Biden family. On the other side, there are a lot of people who have literally coined the term Lion Biden mm -hmm. for this kind of reason. So let's let's go to you, Kimberly. I mean, what do you make of this argument? In an earlier segment, you were saying that you think that the timing of this suggests that there is a bit of a, a conspiracy to protect Joe Biden uh, or protect the Democrats from having to take this heat during midterms or before midterms. What do you make of Joe Rogan's argument that, in fact, it's the Democrats trying to throw uh, Joe Biden under the bus with this information? Yeah, I, you know, I really respect Joe Rogan. Uh, again, you know, similar to what Michael said. I don't know where he gets his information on some of the things that he suggests. I don't personally see it that way, but you know what? I've been wrong in the past. I did want to point out, you know, here we're talking about Joe Rogan, President Biden, and again, President Trump's name comes up and what he could have done and didn't do. And I just want to just focus on the fact that this is really about President Biden and the classified documents found at his home. Uh, you know, it has really nothing to do with President Trump. But I would say that perhaps, you know, it could be a setup. Or I just, I believe President Biden didn't know the documents were there. I, I do believe that. Uh, he doesn't seem coherent on many days. But, you know, his aides turning it over, I don't know if that's a, you know, conspiracy or, or, you know, to get him out of office. But I guess we'll have to see because I'm sure that there are many aides that possibly feel that there could be a better candidate in 2024 for the Democrat Party. Uh, President Biden did not deliver on a lot of his campaign promises. Uh, we saw the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed. Inflation is still absolutely horrible. A carton of eggs these days is about $6 uh, here in the state of Maryland. And so a lot of things that he did say that he was going to do, even like uniting the country, he did not do. So perhaps they do want a different candidate. Yeah, at the, at the same time, I don't know, who, who are these aides? These are Kamala, Kamala Harris um, deep cover aides who are trying to bring about <laughs> her presidency earlier or something. Because, I mean, Joe Biden did, you know, I disagree with uh, so many of his policies. And I was uh, a little surprised, at least, how well the, the party did under his leadership in the midterms, given that 
it seems unlikely to me that, you know, insider operatives are trying to get rid of Biden because who they would replace him with who? Who is who is the figure yeah. that it's actually going to be more successful? I mean, despite, you know, what, what people might think of him or what disagreements yeah. with him, the fact is he kind of delivered um, twice well, now. You're right. And so if you take a step back, let's let's uh, try to be objective. I'll try to be objective yeah. as a non-former Biden uh, employee. Uh, if yeah. you just take the amount of things he's been able to do with a margin in the House, the same as Kevin McCarthy, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, they were able, he has probably been able to get done, you may disagree with it all, right. and they have, maybe, maybe they were compromises, he's a legislator, that's what they do, they make compromises. But he's been able to get done more in two years than most presidents have ever gotten done in eight years. It is remarkable, whether you agree with what he's done or not, it is remarkable how much they were able to get done. And then his party did much better than expected, given historical precedence, given the everything man, going I, on. I, I, I mean, gotta, I am being objective, because I don't like yeah, policies very much, but I have to acknowledge I, and I gotta when say, he was successful. And i got to say, I mean, the man has defied, uh, talk about his coherence, uh, he has def defied political reality three times now. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody thought I joined the campaign when nobody thought he could win. Uh, he was certainly getting outraised by Bernie and Pete and uh, Elizabeth Warren. We had no money going into Super Tuesday, no money on the air. Um, he won the nomination. He beat a sitting incumbent president, which is very hard to do by historical standards. And his party... Uh, really overperformed in a um, midterm election that typically, by historical standards, this political climate with 40-year uh, highs of inflation should have been a layup for the Republican Party. There's no excuse for the Republican Party not— this had the same conditions as 94 and 2010, even worse with inflation. There is no excuse for that yeah, party. Kimberly, why do you think, this is a little bit a field of you know, the topic we're discussing, but I, I think it is relevant. Why wasn't the Republican Party able, able to, uh, to, to better take advantage of the economic situation and other things going on? What seems like, what seemed to a lot of Republicans, I think to a lot of conservatives, as dissatisfaction with the Biden administration and not translate it into more success. Obviously, taking the House was a success, but it's such a tight margin. And then the Senate was just a wild disappointment. I mean, some people were expecting a, a very solid Senate majority for Republicans, and it, it went the other way. What do you think is going on uh, you know, with the Republican Party that they weren't able to capture that spirit of dissatisfaction? Is it truly the successes of the Biden administration are so impressive that Republicans were not able to measure up? I don't think that's what it is, but what do you think? Well, I don't know what successes President Biden has had uh, beyond spending taxpayer dollars. Uh, they've been passing a lot of bills with a huge price tag attached to them. And like I said before, inflation is not going down. Uh, you saw what happened with the gas prices. We were told for over a year that President Biden had nothing to do with the gas prices. As soon as he tapped the reserve, uh, automatically in a miracle, they went down. And I guess he does have something to do with the gas prices. Here's the thing. President Trump, yes, I think he backed a lot of great candidates. But the RNC, there is a leadership issue. Right now, Rona McDaniel, she's got a lot of people running against her. Harmeet Dillon, Mike Lindell for that chairman position. And I think that there should be a change, right? We didn't capitalize on the red wave that we should have had. But at the same time, 
look, you know, we did the best that we could. And given the dynamics, we're now seeing the Twitter files being dropped, right? I think we're not taking that into consideration. But there was a lot of conservatives that were censored and suppressed during the election cycle. And so now we're finding these out because Elon Musk has taken over. So there are things that were always put up against us. Uh, I don't know how many people thought that we were going to take over the Senate. The House, for sure, could have been a lot better, yes. But in the RNC leadership, we definitely have issues. Kimberly, yeah, I got to say, Kimberly, I think that, with all due respect, I understand that some people's position is that the government should never spend money and the government shouldn't exist. I think a plurality of people think that the government isn't just lighting money on fire, but that they appreciate that during the pandemic, especially spending on things like a child tax credit that half child poverty, um, all kinds of things that allowed people unemployment benefits that allowed folks to really survive through the COVID was a good thing. And people appreciated the, the, the you know, the, the checks that were sent out were very popular. And again, ideologically, you personally can agree, disagree with those things. I don't know that it's fair to say that it's just spending money as though that money isn't being spent on things that directly benefit, particularly poor and working class Americans. I do want to give you a chance to respond, though, Michael. Yeah, you know, we the three of us talked about this a couple of days before the election and the red wave coming. And one of the things that I said was um, I wasn't always a believer in pocketbook being the reason for voting, people mm. voting in their pocketbooks, or it's the economy stupid. Um, it's really hard to vote for people. I gave the example of George W. Bush in 2004. Ohio had one of the worst unemployment rates in the country. Mm. No way Ohio was going for George W. Bush, right? Um, there's a big difference when uh, you're, I, I think what we saw is voters were willing to overlook whatever economic pain they may have felt, um, because the candidates on the other side were just not good matches for their states. Mm. They were too associated with Donald Trump. They were election deniers. They were out of the mainstream. People don't like their rights taken away. Mm. And when the Supreme Court took their rights away, it changed the dynamic of You mean the Dobbs rights. and abortion? Yes. Yeah. 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 So a lot of it had to do with what Mitch McConnell famously said, candidate quality. Um, and that's you know, if you were looking at the polls, Democratic candidates were more popular than President Biden, which was helpful. And their Republican opponents always, 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 always had really consistently high negative numbers, meaning people just didn't like them. Mm -hmm. They weren't likable candidates. Mm. Well, can we talk about why that might be just Go for ahead, a second? Kimberly. That is because the media attacks conservative candidates, especially those that are supported by President Trump, time and time again. Voters, yes, they don't always vote based on their pocketbook. They are also voting based on their emotions, right? We have a lot of misinformed voters that base that vote based on their emotions time and time again. And when you have the media constantly telling you that these people are awful people, when you go to the ballot box, yes, you vote for the other candidate because you believe in your heart that these are awful people. So again, the media, the social media sites, they were all against us as we were running for office. And I will say this also, when it comes to the Dobbs decision, it's interesting how that leaked right prior to midterms. When it comes to the Dobbs decision, that only gave it back to the states. Nobody's rights were taken away. You can still go and have an abortion if you really, truly want an abortion. It was unconstitutional to begin with. And so we just, you know, right the wrong, basically, at the end of the day. But again, this is just so ridiculous to me because President Biden has not done anything great for the country. And I will go back to the earlier comments about saying that people were getting, you know, checks from the government during the COVID pandemic. Remember, we were locked down because the government told us we could not go to church. We could not go to work. We could not do things that we usually do. If we didn't have the lockdowns, people would still be going to work and we wouldn't need a check from the government.
Mm. Well, the, well I, I think, we should point out that the Republicans, some Republicans, not all, did propose to put forward a federal abortion ban last year. It's worth noting that a lot of promises have been made about how abortion wasn't actually going to be restricted as a right. We saw in Dobbs that that wasn't the case. And a lot of people around the country, they might be misinformed voters, Kimberly. They might not know what they're talking about. They might just be media stooges who are deluded and aren't able to think for themselves. But that's a problem that Republicans are going to have to contend with, uh, just like Democrats have to contend with negative media cycles from the right-wing news. They're two liberal and right-wing corporate news cycles that everyone's got to kind of swim in that water. So I appreciate both and of you And Biden is dealing with one of those right now. Right, exactly. <laughs> what goes around comes around. So thank you both for joining us. This has been a really rich conversation. Thank you. And we'll have more rising for you right after this. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, I've got another Twitter Files update. The Intercept's Lee Fong has another entry, this time regarding efforts by BioNTech, which partnered with Pfizer to manufacture the COVID mRNA vaccine, to suppress criticism of the company. Where else? On Twitter. Fong reports that in December of 2020, both BioNTech and the German government, BioNTech being a German company, contact, uh, contacted a European Twitter lobbyist to complain that the company was about to be the victim of coordinated online harassment. That lobbyist then informed colleagues at Twitter to beware of an imminent, quote, campaign targeting the pharmaceutical companies developing the COVID-19 vaccine. The authorities are warning about serious consequences of the action, i.e. posts and a flood of comments that may violate terms of service, as well as the takeover of user accounts are to be expected, wrote the Twitter lobbyist. Especially the personal accounts of the management of the vaccine manufacturers are said to be targeted. Accordingly, fake accounts could also be set up. Recall that December 2020 was when vaccines were first being rolled out to the most vulnerable. In other words, it was a pivotal moment for BioNTech to come under online attack. But of course, no such attack took place. Indeed, this campaign of sinister harassment, malfeasance, interference, it was just some people, real people, not fake people, by and large, complaining that Pfizer had no intention of freely sharing the underlying intellectual property, the vaccine technology, with other potential manufacturers and third world countries. In fact, a spokesperson for BioNTech asked Twitter to hide tweets from activists criticizing the company over this very thing. And the Twitter lobbyist, Nina Morshauer, wanted Twitter to monitor and protect the following accounts, Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, AstraZeneca. She also flagged the hashtag, hashtag people's vaccine and hashtag joint a joint CTAP, which, according to Fong, is a reference to the World Health Organization's COVID-19 technology access pool. Fong also accessed emails from a public health nonprofit called Public Goods Project that specialized in pandemic-related communications and contacted Twitter about fighting so-called vaccine misinformation. This organization made requests for Twitter to restrict certain accounts that it thought were undermining public health. But Fung notes that some of the tweets that, con that concerned the public goods project, some of them were actually quite crazy. Others merely called into question vaccine mandates as policy. See this tweet, which was flagged. It isn't false at all, this tweet. The user is objecting to vaccine passports on totally solid grounds. By the way, the group that flagged the tweet received over a million dollars in funding from the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, BIO, which is a lobbyist group for vaccine manufacturers. Both Pfizer and Moderna were clients, of course. In a statement to The Intercept, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization said they were running a pro-vaccine anti-misinformation effort. 
largely missing from Fong's report is significant evidence that Twitter actually did any of the things that these various pro-vax organizations wanted. So perhaps Pfizer and Moderna's money wasn't very well spent. Fong was not able to access the emails directly, it should be said, but rather was given the opportunity to make requests, which were fulfilled by an attorney working for Twitter. In previous Twitter files disclosures, journalists such as Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss have helped shed light on dubious decisions undertaken by the company during its previous ownership. We now know a lot more about how and why the social media company decided to suppress content relating to elections, Hunter Biden, and COVID. So it's no surprise that Pfizer and its army of lobbyists worked to shape the debate on social media as well. There's billions of dollars at stake. But absent significant evidence to the contrary, Twitter doesn't seem to have taken Pfizer's whining all that seriously. My guess, it's just my guess, is that Twitter was less motivated to act here because the implicit and even explicit threats of the U.S. government on COVID subjects had not yet ramped up. Recall that the suppression of contrarian COVID accounts, like the one belonging, for instance, to Alex Berenson, did not take place until some months later after this. This was December 2020, after government officials, including some in the White House, started routinely threatening social media companies as well. And I will have a lot more to say about that later this week. Stay tuned for an original investigative report from me on Thursday. This is wild, Robbie. I got to say, I've, I've really especially appreciated Lee's contributions to these Twitter files. I don't know if it's, you know, the lawyer in me that thinks, oh, I think he's making really great document requests. Mm -hmm. And of course, and the point that you raised and I, I raised earlier when I was talking about Lee, that at the end of the day, he's dependent on whatever the, the lawyers turn over, right? And unlike in a kind of civil litigation, you're not in a situation where the lawyers have to tell you in an itemized list of everything they're not turning over and why, and you can dispute it um, in court. We're, 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 we're kind of at the mercy of what, the, what Twitter wants to hand over. And of course, Twitter still maintains the liability, so there, it has some interest in not turning over everything. However, what it is turning over in this instance, the aggressive lobbying efforts, the tweet that you showed that was the one that got censored that said, you know, if mm -hmm. it is the case. You know, the one they wanted censored. They wanted censored. They wanted censored. Censor. Censor. Yes. You know, if it were the case, if it is the case, which I think at the time for many of us was a kind of an unknown, mm -hmm. but if it were the case that somebody who was vaccinated, versus unvaccinated was shedding viral uh, viral viral loads at the same amount as someone who wasn't, then the passports make no sense. I mean, that's just logically consistent. Mm -hmm. in a completely, wh whatever the science maybe was going to tell you about wh what the actual effect of the vaccines were, that kind of a tweet is logically in, in, in consistent within itself. And it is very frustrating that the reaction, not just the censorship on Twitter, but the broader public reaction to that kind of speech was so negative, that I think it shut down those kinds of more abstract conversations about how we should be design designing uh, the policies, depending on what information we learned about COVID as more information developed. And it's very frustrating because it's I, it, I think it really damaged the public trust in ways that we're still struggling with. And so much of what, what the uh, the lobbyists, the the pharmaceutical company representatives, comm specialists were saying, that language, it, it's that pernicious language that is now it, like it sounds Russiagate-esque, the, oh, yes, there's going to be bad actors and fake accounts and a campaign of influence. Like, they're all describing these sinister things. What they None of that happened, or, or, or that did happen, but what they mean is just legitimate criticism of 
of Pfizer and Moderna. And, and this criticism, mostly what they were worried about, wasn't even criticism along the lines that there were some vaccines don't work, et cetera. But it was actually a, it was a policy question about whether Pfizer is going to hold uh, or, or a BioNTech is going to hold the, the patent for the, for which the technology, which was, a, I, I know, a huge thing progressives yes. talked a lot about. I remember Ryan talking about it a lot uh, back, you know, when we were in the kind of the vaccine rollout phase and all that. Yes, absolutely. And frankly, it is an, that policy decision is one that we are still dealing with as so many of the variants have emerged because they're able to germinate in parts of the world that haven't seen vaccines yet and probably won't see vaccines until this year, maybe even the next year. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the idea that those kind of, that the people, that these organizations, these corporations feel so empowered to use these uh, private media companies as their own personal PR organizations is very damning. I will say, though, and you've made this point before, it is kind of refreshing and reassuring and shows Twitter in an unexpectedly positive light to see how effectively they've pushed back against a lot of this stuff. Yes, so that is the interesting line here. Remember, this is uh, what uh, Li Fang was revealing is from a period, the December, tw December 2020, which was before a lot of the government encouraging of censorship stepped up. At that point, you can see Twitter, et cetera, being like, what? No, we're not. OK, we looked at these. They're fine. Move on. And then it was some months later, it was the period, Alex Berenson starts coming under attack, I think, spring, summer, and then is banned in the fall. That's, you know, Biden makes the they're killing people remark in July of 2021. Mm -hmm. That's what then, then and, and then we, we know there's communications from White House officials, other officials. Again, I'm going to talk about that later this week. So it's interesting to see how that kind of took it out of the realm of we can just ignore this from, yeah. the, uh, from the social media company's perspective. Yeah. yeah, look, I think this has always been a story, and I, I regret that the left has not been more on this. The story of pharmaceutical overreach, mm -hmm. trying to exclude themselves from basic liability standards, um, the patent protection and the kind of lack of ethics around what that means for global populations and, frankly, how it's going to affect us in the longer term, that should have been front of mind and a top issue for the left. Yeah. And the fact that it wasn't, is something that we're going to have to continue with. For yeah, I think time. I've said this before. I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, it, I'm, I'm, I'm a libertarian. I have no problems with corporations making money, et cetera. <laughs> I do think patent uh, protection, intellectual property has gone way too far and there's too much protection for it. Um, contra intellectual property is not, it's not actual property. It's yeah. ideas. The whole, and we've the whole, gone way yeah. too far. It goes to, toward criminalizing your right to copy my idea. That's right. not theft in the same right. way as other theft is. It's, it's a policy, right? It's yeah. not like... It's, does it, it's not natural law that comes down from like the Ten Commandments from heaven. Yeah. The policy is supposed to be designed to allow people who have invested a lot in research and development to recoup the benefits of that before everyone can just hop on and replicate the products. Fine. There is a market justification for that kind of behavior. But when it gets to the point where these pharmaceutical companies are making billions and billions of dollars hand over fist, and a lot of the research and development is frankly coming at, from the government, from these public research institutions, et cetera, you have to really question that arrangement. Yeah, I think there's a lot of commonality between my approach and a progressive approach here, actually. We will have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Some of the world's wealthiest figures are currently in the Swiss town of Davos for the World Economic Forum's meeting that started yesterday. Many online commentators have claimed that the event involves a group of elites manipulating global events for their own gain. 
According to AP, experts say what was once a conspiracy theory found throughout the Internet's underground has now hit the mainstream. The theme of the meeting in 2020 was called the Great Reset, which envisioned how changes could be implemented to build a more sustainable future. This theme has been referenced by many well-known names, including Fox News' Tucker Carlson and Sandy Hook denier Alex Jones, who largely view the plan as an elite conspiracy to consolidate world power and implement control over society. But Twitter Files journalist Michael Schellenberger tweeted yesterday, spokespersons for the World Economic Forum say the Great Reset, eating insects instead of meat, and you'll own nothing and be happy, are conspiracy theories, but they're not. In fact, all of them originated at Davos and from the World Economic Forum's own website. Now, uh, WEF is deleting those, of course. This article that was reportedly on the website in 2016 has, has since been deleted, says, welcome to 2030, I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. Uh, I wanted to talk about this because, so, th so this is getting the kind of mainstream media spin of, oh, look at all these people criticizing Davos and the World Economic Forum, they're spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. If you're upset about this, you are yourself a conspiracy theorist. It, it's all just conspiracies. And yes, if you get into the granular details, are some people saying things about the World Economic Forum they are not representing its views correctly? I mean, it doesn't even have views. It is a gathering of heads of state and business leaders and, and influential people from all over the world who have a variety of different, different agendas and don't internally agree. So it's, there's not one agenda they're putting forth. Mm -hmm. But some of the things they talk about uh, in terms of environmentalism, in terms of uh, sur state surveillance, state capacity, um, uh, the, the, the kinds of governments run by these very people, uh, what they'll be able to do to you, uh, the kind of social credit score system, tracking, uh, you know, kind of nudging. It's for your health. It's for your own good. It's mm -hmm. a very kind of soft... Uh, dystopian progressive. Look, it's not, it, so, again, I, as I said last time we talked about this, some of these ideas might be fine, but it is also fine to be critical of it, to not like that you're not invited, that it's a secret meeting, semi-secret meeting of elites, and you might not like all these policies. Maybe they'll involve outsourcing and, and, and maybe they're too deferential to China's new hegemony, all that stuff. That is fine. It is not a conspiracy theory to object to that, to no, speak out against not. it. No, certainly not. And, like, I think it's, it is healthy for – look, I remember not so long ago living in a world where there was kind of more an open embrace of and an almost admiration for a certain kind of elitism. I think coming out of the Bush era and into the Obama era, there was this idea that we're going to leave like the dumb Neanderthals behind and that all the problems in the world could be solved by the right technocratic brain that went to Harvard and attended Davos, right? And that was part of the appeal of Obama. And I think the Obama years uh, disabused a lot of people have the notion that that was going to be the fix. However, I think the part of it that's a little frustrating from a left perspective is, you know, more people should be interrogating why it is that the kinds of solutions that are coming out of Davos do seem so dystopian for many of us. For those of us who believe that there is a climate crisis, who understand that there have been famines and droughts as a consequence of um, environmental change, and also because of uh, war driving immigration across the country, all kinds of displacement, a third of Pakistan underwater this year, wildfires in California, that these are things that are happening, whatever you want to attribute them to, say, well, obviously we have to do some planning about how to maintain resources, how to grow enough food to feed the world and all these other kinds of things. The war in Ukraine obviously impacted grain supplies, et cetera. Now, why is it that the solutions always seem to be we all eat bugs? Mm -hmm. Well, part of it is that the changes that would be more equitable and less severe for the broader public come at the expense of the very, very wealthy. Are you going to be able to graze endless 
endless rounds of beef so that every, all the people who eat a steak every day for lunch can continue to eat a steak every day for lunch? Or are we going to turn some of that pasture land into agricultural land so that the rest of us don't have to eat bugs? And these are the kind of trade-offs that aren't being discussed in the pernicious motives of corporations and, the, and people who are very, very elite who want to aggregate all of the wealth at the very, very top without making any sacrifices themselves while we're all at the back of the snowpiercer train eating bug gelatin. You know, that, that is the real problem here. And I, and I hope that some of this stuff moves from, oh, it's just crunchy green liberals who want you to eat bugs. No, the people at that conference aren't crunchy green liberals. They're people who know that there's a limit on their economic oil invest, investments because these are not infinite they sources. They have crunchy liberal social views and, sure. and well, even worse enrich than that. me corporate uh, economic yeah, yes, but even worse, I think that some of them don't even have those social views, but they do use those social views to launder their bad practices. And this has been happening with the weaponization of identity politics. This is happening by putting a woke flag on a lot of things that are really pernicious. But again, I don't think it's not the wokeness that's the problem. It's not black people or trans people or gay people or anything that's the problem. It's people like this who exploit the existence of those groups and legitimate historical persecution that they've had to endure to launder a bunch of same old, same old corporate practices. Um, to that end, the charity organization Oxfam, which focuses on alleviating global poverty, made a plea to the leaders at Davos that the number of billionaires should be reduced by half by 2030 in a report titled Survival of the Richest. Twitter CEO Elon Musk weighed in on the WEF's plan to incorporate, quote, environmental, social and governance criteria into its investment strategy, quipping that the S stands for satanic. What do you make of this? Is it just a billionaire being big mad that billionaires have a target on their back, or yeah, do you I get a point here? Uh, I, I don't. I don't know why it's like satanic. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, I, I, that is a kind of uh, a, a type of criticism I see from some on the right that ought to impute to the elites that it's all like it's literal Satanism or literal. Yeah, Hillary Clinton is you know slipping down, right? Eating, children, <laughs> drinking the blood of children, yeah. that kind of thing. Like, no, just say, then people don't take you seriously when yeah. you say that because that sounds crazy and is like 99% untrue. Of course, there was actually a Jeffrey Epstein cavorting with rich and powerful people and yeah. actually engaged in sex trafficking, sexual abuse of underage. Like every now and then, the, the what sounds like, well, that's too crazy, your criticism, that that's too far out there, is true. Every now and then it yeah. is true. But mostly, no. It's, they're not, you know, they're not uh, sacrificing children in pagan rituals. They are discussing policies that they think would be good for society and would especially be good for them and making more money for their corporations and, and enriching the governments represented. And we, some of those policies might be worth implementing, but we all get to decide. America is a, is a democratic republic where we have elected representatives. We don't have to go along with what they say in Davos. It should be told to the American people and, and they get to weigh these policies. And it, it should be what's good for everyone, not well, just let's what's good for the Well, let's interrogate that. Let's interrogate the idea that we're a democracy because based well, on I, polls— I, Ideally, that's what—I'm not saying yeah, we yeah. actually are. We, we but, but here's the issue. Obviously, some edict that comes out from Davos or from Oxfam, nobody's following. Yeah. These are all advisory or whatever. But the, the, the conversation about how many billionaires there should be. So notably, the number of billionaires that exist has gone up exponentially. There are 500 new billionaires uh, minted during the— 2020 economic crisis, which a lot of people found to be 
disturbing given how much the rest of the world was uh, suffering. There's a heightened awareness of the fact that there is a relationship between how many people are poor and how many people are rich, and these things are happening in tandem. And when you look at root causes, there are a lot of things that people point to. For example, the average CEO pay versus worker pay has exploded over the last 40 years or so. In the middle of the last century, in the 1950s, 60s, it was something like a 1 to 30 ratio. The the um, earnings of a CEO versus a worker. Now it's closer to one to 300. I think it's actually edging closer to one to 400 ratio. We've seen jobs sipped overseas. We've seen workers get a smaller share of the pie. We've seen union density lower. And so workers can advocate for the wages that they used to be able to, to wait, earn. And so you're, you're getting more and more in wealth av- a- a- aggregated at the top. Now, that's no surprise then, maybe, that a wealth tax, when polled, is very, very popular. We don't get a wealth tax in terms of legislation, however, perhaps because people like Elon Musk and other billionaires who give enormous amounts to these presidential campaigns, Joe Biden took more billionaire money than anybody else in the race, including Donald Trump, have no incentive to actually do anything about having the number of the billionaires, or at least limiting the, the idea that billionaires are able to extract so much wealth at a period of crisis. Yeah, I, I mean, here we, you and I will probably have some real disagreements. I don't, I don't have any desire to have fewer billionaires like in a vacuum. Like the number of billionaires there are doesn't bother me. If people are making billions of dollars legitimately, not with subsidies, not with cheats, and there's a lot of that going on, and we both agree on getting rid of that, they're, if they're doing it by providing value to society, by, by providing food and clothing and services that people want to buy, and that's how they get rich, that's fine with me. Uh, you probably disagree with this. I don't think like a core, like just because more people have a lot more, sometimes that means other people have less. Doesn't always, I mean, the global poverty rate has like fallen over the last hundred years dramatically, right? It hasn't, the, largely because of the third world getting better, et cetera. Maybe the, there's been some stagnation in our own country or in the developed world. By and large, the period of extreme growth in the billionaire class has not coincided with Massive right. global well, it, it just, it, poverty. It takes it's very little to raise someone who's living on a dollar a day to two dollars a day. It doesn't call, it doesn't require that much distributional change to bring the very bo- because things are just so bad to bring the very bottom right. up out of poverty. I but don't those mean to minimize that accomplishment. Income is huge. Right. I don't mean to minimize that accomplishment, but that doesn't undermine the reality that wealth, the wealth aggregation that we've seen over the last 50 years is a direct result of economic policy. People didn't just start inventing cooler products that consumers wanted to consume more. There are, there are real economic underpinnings to how this kind of thing happens. So again, I'm not, if, if everyone could be a billionaire, obviously I'd love that. <laughs> you know, if everybody could be, well, but also, or if there could but, be, I mean, be there a no lot of billionaires. billionaires under feudalism, right? Where there's, everyone is, I mean, a couple people have, have land, but don't have anything like the opulent wealth of today's well, billionaires, they're, and everyone else is really poor, and it just society's terrible. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that's actually a very good example. I don't know what, how, how we would, how many gold coins or whatever equals a billion, but, but the, that, those huge aggregations of wealth among very, very few people and families is exactly the system that many people like, you know, Yanis Varoufakis calls it a techno-feudalism, I believe, the system that we are heading to right now with these huge tech giants aggregating all of this wealth and power that they're using per the Twitter files to control democracy, to uh, advance their own financial interests, to suppress criticism of China, if, if your business is there, as, as people have accused Elon Musk of doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's 
it's worth discussing, and I'm glad Davos is opening up that particular conversation. I just hope that it gets a little deeper than accusing people of, you know, drinking kid blood and uh, wanting to put. What's bugs your favorite? On our what, yeah, what's your favorite bug dish? <laughs> I've never. I don't think I've ever had. One. <laughs> I don't think I have either. Lobster. I mean, it's kind of a bug. If you really want to talk about Lobster's, it, but you guys no, aren't ready for that. An arthropod, right? Uh, uh, it's a crustacean, <laughs> and insects are a different thing. Remember the classification. All right. Every insect from- I fly B. I was a bio major. All right. We'll have more rising after this. Brian Koberger, the suspect in the murder of four Idaho college students, is scheduled to appear in court on June 26 for a preliminary hearing. Posts that Koberger made as a teenager on a forum website called Tapatalk reveal an anxious, depressed, and suicidal person who wrote of not being able to feel emotions and being able to do, quote, whatever I want with little remorse. Of his family, he wrote, quote, as I hug my family, I look into their faces, I see nothing. It is like I am looking at a video game, but less. Hmm. Very chilling stuff. Um, Obviously, that helps us get more into the head of someone who could possibly commit this just utterly despicable crime, uh, possibly against people he didn't even really seem to know, or they at least there's no reason to think they knew who he was. Uh, they might have been strangers to him or just people he'd seen on the street or had some casual knowledge of. Um, not that if they had wronged him, it would make right, it of okay that he murdered him, but but you know to do this to people he had no even grievance with yeah, or it's, something. It's senseless. It feels senseless, and that's part of what's so scary about it. I think that the reason people when these mm-hmm. horrible crimes happen, are looking for a motive. It's because as the casual viewer, you want to You're looking a, to see something that, that it, can't, it couldn't yes, be you. You're like, looking for, well, they did, even if it, that doesn't right. justify it or make of it like, well, but I wouldn't find myself in that situation because I don't have a public feud with someone or I didn't, you know, yeah. and that's run over so my scary. neighbor's lawn or something. Right. Well, that's, that's what's so scary yeah. about this and what sounds like a kind of personality disorder, potentially. I'm no psychiatrist, but... Mm-hmm. Whether or not he's ultimately diagnosed with some kind of, you know, sociopathy or something like that. I mean, a lot of people who have those kind of personality disorders. I mean, they obviously never do anything. Like most people, overwhelmingly, um, no matter how kind of atypical one's orientation to the family and having certain kind of normative feelings, et cetera, never get to a point where you're murdering multiple people in the dead of night um, as violently as what happened here. But it does, I don't know, it, it, it is, it is, it, it, it's chilling. It really puts the, I don't want to say cherry, but it, it really kind of gilds what is already a really um, mm-hmm. stunning and horrific story here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the former attorney to the Idaho murder suspect, Brian Koberger, says he believes that the case against uh, the murder suspect could be attacked. Attorney Jason Labar said in an interview last week that while the circumstantial evidence is strong, if individually taken, Mm -hmm. it can be attacked, which, you know, I think is true. I mean, his attorney is going to mount a defense. He's entitled to the, the strong defense. The government has to make its case. But, you know, look, what evidence do we have yeah, I, so far? This is right. The DNA evidence on the sheath for the knife was left at the scene. His car seen at the scene of the murder. Uh, and now you have, don't these, uh, well, you tell me, you're the attorney. Uh, I know you think this wasn't your area <laughs> of specialty, but uh, do those statements he made on those forums, are they going to make their way to the trial? Oh. Is that... Mm. 
uh, you know, that's the kind of character evidence that I think that you typically try to keep out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be difficult. Jury selection is going to be an issue. How much people just are aware of the case and if they can appropriately the exclude all the people who... covered case. Right. I mean, you can always find someone who's yeah. not paying attention uh, to the news that closely. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, unless they're, um, let me not try to reach back to my evidence class from 15 years ago, but generally speaking, that kind of character evidence, unless it goes to honesty, um, like you're on trial for stealing something and you've previously been convicted of embezzling from your company, things like that, um, or, uh, used for impeachment purposes. So you get on the stand and you're attesting to your truthfulness. So then you can come, you bring evidence in that you were previously a dishonest person, et cetera, things like that. But generally speaking, um, he might, I don't know, he might bring his own psychological state into play as part of his defense, but certainly and those kind of statements. bring that in maybe? Yeah. Hard to know. I, I, I wouldn't put, I mean, most people yeah. choose not to put people on the stand for exactly this kind yeah. of reason, because it does open the door to a lot of, um, Damning evidence. Yeah. Uh, although we had some higher profile trials recently, and maybe it's not recent anymore, where putting the person on the stand, with Kyle Rittenhouse on the stand, I, I think was is viewed as uh, was very good for his case, ended up helping him. Um, obviously, this is entirely different circumstances. I don't. I'm not sure you'd want to put Brian Koberger on the stand. It looks I, sure. It's I guess circumstantial evidence. It looks very compelling. To, I, I can't imagine them having Look, much different. I mean, maybe he pleads to something and then we don't. I, they say I, it always I, takes one on the jury, but it I seems like a be- slam dunk case to me. I can't begin to predict the sympathies of American jurors and the American public. Yeah. I Look, we had this conversation that I don't mean to relitigate it, but there are people who are sympathetic, very sympathetic to someone like Kyle Rittenhouse who one could argue put himself into danger, endangered the public, carrying a gun into a violent area, you know, you know, created an unsafe situation. Even if you th- think that he was justified in shooting those people in self-defense, that ideally he wouldn't have ever been there and that what situation never should have emerged. At the same time, it will be very unsympathetic of um, a 13-year-old allegedly trying to steal a car and getting shot dead, and then may be, might be sympathetic of, I don't know if you saw the video of the little toddler running around, walking around with a loaded gun uh, in an apartment complex a few days ago. Someone saw and was able to call and defuse the situation before, God forbid, anything happened. And then they'll have a different thought and feeling and pro- thought process around the six-year-old who shot his teacher, quote-unquote, intentionally, but what, what's the mens rea of a six-year-old? I mean, I can't even begin to predict. The reactions to all of those stories have been all over the place. I think they've been dictated by ideological priors, feelings about gun rights, um, racial preferences, and pe- feelings about who deserves to have a gun and who doesn't have deserve to have a gun. And... I would not be surprised by anything at this point. I don't think any of that enters in here, though. I, it's just, it's a utterly unsympathetic, to be clear. But you, you got to see what the evidence who, is. You got to well, see what the evidence is. There are a lot of disaffected, sad youths out there. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily murderers. No, no, I know, but that I don't think there's going to be sympathy for him. Yeah. I don't think there's any. And DNA there's evidence, no I gotta say, element. There's D- no D- DNA evidence is. Definitely impeachable. Like, it's not mm-hmm. a perfect science. They tracked the DNA from the crime scene to an, a DNA test. Uh, his parents, what was it, had taken a DNA test. You know, who knows what the chain of custody issues are going to be like there. Like, there's a lot of stuff that comes out in the course of the right, trial. It's his knife sheet. It's his car. And 
everything we learn about this guy is, yeah, that's the guy who does something like this. <laughs> I mean, what? It's that's okay. The well, truth. don't that's don't absolutely put, the truth. <laughs> the yeah, defense should not be putting Robbie Suave on their jury. Think, we know that for sure. I think that's the conclusion. Any jury. Yeah, I mean, I think but. I think it's likely, but I, all I'm saying is I wouldn't put it past. Stranger, stranger things have happened. Mm. I guess we'll find out uh, in June. Mm. And we'll be following that as more details unfold, more rising after this. In a recent article, reporter Teddy Schleifer recounted details from his interview with former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried in his home in Palo Alto, California. Schleifer also said the first thing that he noticed was SBF's German Shepherd greeting him at the door. And then the second thing was, of course, the ankle monitor on his foot. Reporter Teddy, reporter Teddy Schleifer is here to tell us more about this conversation with SBF. Welcome, Teddy. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. This interview is, is quite the scoop. You talk about, what, hitching, hitching a ride uh, to, to see uh, SBF at his house where he's living a kind of cloistered existence with just his family. You write about how it was quiet when you got there. His parents seemed to be upstairs, didn't come down during the interview, um, and kind of painted a very interesting portrait of what his day-to-day life is like right now. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to get access uh, for this interview? Sure. I mean, uh, it's, it's a totally fair question because obviously, I mean, obviously, uh, understatement uh, of the century that uh, people who are under house arrest, you know, charged with perpetrating one of the greatest financial crimes in American history uh, don't typically like welcome anybody, reporters, observers, lawyers, you know, into their into their lair. Right. I mean, um, obviously, there's enormous legal risk uh, that he already faces. Um, and when you start uh, welcoming People who can ask questions about your mental state or your decisions um, that can only expand your legal risk. But I mean, the 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 reason why I think Sam wanted me there, and I think why Sam is, um, you know, an unusual defendant, to put it mildly, um, is he like lots of you know people in, in the spotlight feels that he is misunderstood. Um, and as a reporter, you know, you often witness people in these emotional. Uh, raw, you know, highest profile moments of their life. And to some extent, like, you know, as a, as a journalist and um, you're looking for the overlap in the Venn diagram, you're looking for the moment where um, what you want, which is, you know, to, to capture somebody and, and deliver a great story overlaps with what the subject wants. And what the subject wants here is to be better understood. Um, so that's kind of, it was, it was the better alignment that you can only, it doesn't happen every day. Right. I mean, ultimately, um, what's keeping that Venn diagram from overlapping often are the lawyers, the handlers, the the parents, the people who say, you know, shut up. Um, For one's own self-interest, to be honest. And so, I mean, it kind of begs right. the question, you know, it, is it, you know, did you sense these moments? Did you sense moments, despite him wanting to be, let's say, better understood, where you felt mm-hmm. like he was perhaps undermining his own interest? Um, and, you know, did you ask questions? I mean, did he, did he seem... Contrite? Did he seem to understand his own legal liability? Do you think it was grounded in an understanding of what his uh, vulnerability was legally, or do you think there's a kind of hubris operating here, where he seems some people have a pine that he seems to think that he can outwit the public, um, sure. uh, outwit the, the legal case against him, et cetera? Well, well, just you know, a day or two after um, our story published at Puck. Um, you know, Sam wrote a Substack post. Um, yeah, we, we read and talked about that and had great interest in <laughs> right. that. But it's sort of the same thing, right? I mean, uh, ultimately, you know, that uh, obviously, you know, opens up, you know, I can tell you, you know, SCNY prosecutors are reading that post closely. 
Um, and, you know, typically, you know, in crisis comms, right? I mean, you, you guys know this as well as anybody, right? You just, you have kind of a narrow surgical response to arguments and you, you know, litigate it in the court that, uh, you know, is best handled to adjudicate it, whether that's like a real court uh, or the court of public opinion. Sam here seems to think that, you know, the legal risk that he may be incurring by speaking to me or speaking to, you know, his followers on Substack is basically worth it, right? He thinks that ultimately he's not going to sit there and take, you know, nine months or a year or however long of, of punches. He wants to, he wants to fight. And like, maybe you win, you know, marginal sympathy in the PR battle, um, you know, day to day, but obviously, you know, that incurs, you know, legal risk. So it's kind of a question of whether or not it's worth winning, you know, the, the public relations war on Tuesday, if it means, you know, extending years more in jail, only he can answer that. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Okay, so so you have talked to him. So from reading the Substack, I, I guess I'll start with that. He, he comes across sure. as thinking that what happened was essentially a really bad confluence of almost acts of like lightning striking the same place a number of times and then having this kind of this rival, uh, the uh, uh, Binance, uh, working against him when he maybe didn't expect that. And, he, you know, he had enough he was set up to survive enough bad stuff happening. But but that was the tipping point that they weren't prepared for. And because of that and, and he's so he's um like he feels that they, they screwed up because they didn't prepare for that, but that that was not a a like a catastrophically misguided thing that they were doing is his perspective right. because it would have taken all these things plus someone working against him to destroy him. Is that what he sounds like? You know, from conversation, it's not understanding or thinking that there's a broader criminality about it, really, or even really careless thinking, which is what so many people are describing it as. You know, how could this person just you know throw away all this money? You know, gamble about gambling it away. But from his thinking, it wasn't really doing that. Is can you can you speak to his mindset, or is is that how it comes across? Yeah, I mean, look, there um, there there is an element of that, right? The, that you know, look. He talks about, for instance, like lots of companies that have struggled over the last couple or the last couple of months or the last year, right? He talks about the broader crypto downturn. I mean, there, there is an element of, you know, Sam was going to show up in Congress and say that he effed up, right, uh, for, you know, national television. Um, so, so he, he was prepared to take some responsibility. Um, but ultimately, you know, he calls it this failure to hedge, um, that he sort of blames on, on Alameda, which, you know, as you guys have talked about, is this affiliated hedge fund, which, Sam says he didn't really control. So, like, to, to some extent, I think there's contrition. Um, and I do believe, you know, he knows the consequences, right? He understands there are people who, you know, uh, lost money as a result of him effing up. But um, he sort of paints uh, he paints it in this broader context of, like, lots of companies were, were effing up around this time, essentially. Um, so, and but Sam also is aware of the fact that, like, one of my takeaways from the interview is that he is contrite, but he's almost performatively contrite, that he knows he's supposed to be contrite. And and I don't necessarily think that's that different than any politician who's kind of going through a scandal, right, where um, do they think that the media is out to get them or their opponents are out to get them? Uh, absolutely. Do they think that they screwed up, you know, when they 
you know, plagiarized a, a speech or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they know they screwed or up. Or fabricated they they an entire that. origin story and all of their achievements. Whatever. <laughs> sure. I mean, like, I mean, I mean, honestly, this, this could apply to any like any any scandal in any any industry yeah. where where there's where people in 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 the in the uh, crosshairs feel that they both a made a mistake, but it's still motivated by their enemies. But they just know they shouldn't talk about the second thing, right? So they 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 are contrite, but they also almost exaggerate their true contrition, if that makes sense, because they know that they need to, like, play nice for the cameras. Well, and he seems to also think that, or at least in that sub-stack, it comes across at the end that it was all salvageable. He could have made right by everyone, but then the, still, you know, the still, bankruptcy right? people I mean, come still, in and still. they just say, well, to hell with even trying. Like, we could have given it another go. Yeah, I'm sorry. That sounds like the, it's the opposite <laughs> of contrition. When you write about it feeling... Uh, put upon, uh, like a formulaic kind of contrition, a, a, a performance of contrition. That, to me, feels a lot more accurate. And we saw a little bit behind the veil, right, in that Vox interview that wasn't supposed to be a Vox interview where he was DMing with someone yeah. who we thought was not on the re- he was not on the record with. And he said some, I think, more honest things about how the effect of altruism was, you know, some of the effect of altruism was kind of also performative. It was a scam. You know, it wasn't it was, you know, it's the thing you got to do for Pierre. Exactly. And this, and this is this is the main critique that has come down about SBF and the coverage of SBF but, and why he wasn't discovered more quickly. I was actually I started watching a um, Bernie Madoff documentary over the weekend and I was having these flashbacks because yeah. there were yeah. people who kind of called it out and saw something suspicious earlier on. But because this guy just seemed in like Flynn, he was in the nice building. He knew all the right people. He was married to a woman from an affluent family. I mean, this is this is um. Uh, Bernie Madoff, not yeah. uh, SBF, uh-huh. we're talking about here. But the, the same truth: the SBF is a son of Stanford professors. Everyone likes the whiz kid narrative. We we have the um, Elizabeth Holmes of it all, the the black turtle, like the, the mystique, the beanbag. People are concerned that still reporters have a well, he's just like me orientation toward him, and are not treating him the way that someone who stole. A pack of cigarettes from a convenience store would be treated in the in, sure. in, in the media. And when he talks about, you know, ah, uh, like if I just hedged differently, this could have worked out. Uh, most of the time, this kind of thing works out. It sounds like a drunk driver rationalizing that nine of the last ten times he drove drunk, there happened not to be an accident, as though that absolves him from putting himself in that risky situation. So, I mean, what do you make of that, and how do you negotiate that tension as a journalist covering him? Yeah, look, I mean, the, 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 the results speak for themselves, right? I mean, uh, the, the guy is in, indicted uh, and is probably, you know, legally screwed here. So, so uh, as, as, as a journalist, you know, I think we um, what, what we write matters, obviously, but it also to some extent like doesn't right now, because like even if he has the best press in the world, um, you know, in nine months, this guy is is going to see his day in court and is probably going to be deep six legally when this is all said and done. So there's like, I I understand your point about, Mm -hmm. you know, totally. I mean, there should be self-reflection upon the media about how Sam was perceived. But I also think this is um, ultimately uh, a display of how the justice system kind of works eventually, regardless of, you know, whether or not uh, people write nice things about him is ultimately um, there are, are prosecutors who are on the case, who are subpoenaing records, who are doing lots of things that reporters can't do. Right. Um, you know, I'm not a crypto reporter, but like there are folks who uh, can scrutinize um, Sam's activities in a way that crypto reporters cannot. Um, and I, I almost wonder sometimes if we put too much emphasis on kind of the media's influence to like to extract accountability 
when, when ultimately, like, there are tools that prosecutors have. And frankly, there are facts that prosecutors now know about that we didn't know about six months ago, right? We didn't know about um, kind of the precise relationship between FTX and Alameda in even June or July. And now we're going to have a lot more facts at our disposal. And I think the public record uh, will correct itself eventually. I don't know if that's satisfying, right? Because we would all love for everything to be known at, at the time. Surely, like FTX, you know, customers would have loved to have known all these things six months ago. But I don't know. Think, things might work out eventually. Not that we're rooting for an outcome. And obviously, you know, if he's acquitted, he's acquitted. But um, there's an element of kind of self-correction that the justice system has at its disposal. I think what's a little frightening, perhaps, or at least gives people yeah. pause, is the idea that whether or not the just criminal justice system is going to do what it's going to do, Sam Bankman-Fried seems to believe that there is some advantage to talking to the press in this way. And I think people are just hopeful that he's not right. <laughs> if he's able to affect public opinion in a way that uh, allows him to elude substantive accountability for, you know, this multi-billion dollar uh, theft loss, however you want to characterize it. But thank you so much for joining us, Teddy. It's, it's a really incredible article, and I encourage people to read it over at Puck. Thanks so much. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald recently joined me on my own podcast, Bad Faith, on an episode that aired yesterday. And he said some pretty stunning um, insight, had some pretty steady insights about the Twitter files and the criticisms that have been coming down about how the Twitter files were actually administered. I asked him, are those kinds of criticisms something that would prevent him from being willing to be an administer of one of these Twitter files drops? This is what he had to say. I probably would not have felt totally comfortable, to be honest, with the way in which it was done. In the sense so. that they were the they were the guardians of the information, and the only information that you end up getting is information they decide to give you. And I'm not willing to kind of be manipulated by the possibility that people are handpicking what they want me to see or don't want me to see, because that can end up causing me or putting me in the position where I'm unwittingly serving as a spokesperson for an agenda that is not mine. Glenn, so, isn't that kind of a big deal? Isn't that kind of a significant critique? And and I think probably one of the only good faith critiques that's come down about everybody, including people whose journalism I respect so much, like Matt Taibbi, is that if you aren't able to have direct access to the primary documents, if you are, to your point, being served up some kind of sliver. I mean, I, I've seen that asked in like a call-in situation. What about censorship of the left? And he said, well, I just haven't seen very much of that. And maybe that's true. Maybe Twitter just had not that much interest in, in censoring the left. Fine. But when you are only getting a piece of the pie, it puts someone who is a good faith actor like Matt Taibbi in the position of making a representation, like Twitter wasn't that focused on censoring the left, that he might not be able to realistically speak too truthfully because he only has a, a piece of the picture. Right. All he can say is, I didn't see it. And the reason he maybe didn't see it is because he wasn't shown it. So I guess, like, you know, again, um, first of all, let me just say that there were no real left-wing journalists brought in, although, like, a framework that doesn't count Matt Taibbi and Lee Fong as leftist is one that I don't fully trust. But, like... It is true that people who are, say, like, real leftists were not brought in. But notice as well that there were no real, like, MAGA journalists or far-right 
journalists. They didn't invite Breitbart in or, you know, uh, Charlie Kirk in. I mean, he. I think Elon's vision of politics is a little bit simplistic. He he thinks he's supposed to avoid the far left and the far right, and the people in the middle are the ones you trust. And to him, the middle is Barry Weiss, Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, these kind of people. And I think that was sort of what guided him. The critique that you're making that you only get what journalists, what the source shows you, and therefore they, the source may end up being able to manipulate your journalism is completely correct. All I'm saying once again, though, is that this is always how it is. Now for context, Glenn goes on to say in the interview that this is the situation that many journalists have found themselves in. There was some healthy pushback from my audience about those points. But he also took to the uh, internet that day, yesterday, to say, to put this in full context, one, all journalism is based on what sources provide, except if you have full access to government or corporate files, this is always the case. Two, what Taibbi et al. reported was highly newsworthy on its own. Three, Fong today said he had full access and no limits. When Daniel Ellsberg gave the Pentagon Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. How did they know that he didn't admit things? They didn't, but they knew that what he provided standing alone was newsworthy. Same with Snowden. The Brazil Archive, WikiLeaks, or when New York Times CNN report uh, on what the CIA tells them to say. Um, he says, for his own show system update on Rumble, we interviewed four, maybe five journalists who reported the Twitter files. They all said the same. Nobody from Twitter paid them. There were no restrictions on what they could say or report. Nothing com compromised their editorial independence. And yet, Glenn also said that he would feel some reservation about being one of the journalists responsible for a Twitter files drop because of that selective um, nature of getting the documents at hand. So what do you make of this? Are you surprised that uh, here Glenn seems to be echoing some of, I think, the best faith criticism that's come down about this from the left, at least? Um, well, no, I'm not surprised to hear Glenn saying that because I, I think he is a pretty good and pretty fair uh, journalist. I don't Always agree with him, um, but uh, I think he's. I think he's also very good on the process of journalism, talking about how journalism should work. Yeah. Um, and and like him, I feel that yeah. While it might be, and I, I agree with what he's saying that all journalism, it's the project of journalism, is a project of curating information for an audience, and it's who do you trust to do the curating? I mean, this is an issue we have with. The mainstream media, sometimes even with the New York Times and the Washington Post, what they choose to include or not include in things that they write about, and then how they package it and how they headline it and how they image it. These are all editing decisions and curating decisions that sometimes are not good. You know, sometimes they, they bear, and with COVID, sometimes they've buried facts that I think are relevant. Sometimes they're bringing in facts I don't think are relevant. Um, and then sometimes they're looking at, you know, they're looking at tons of information and they're deciding which aspects of that they think are rel uh, relevant for you and relevant for the article. That's something I've done as a, as a writer for a magazine and a variety of other places. You know, sometimes I'm looking at, uh, sometimes I'm summarizing lawsuits. I've, I've been summarizing court documents. And maybe the court document is publicly available, and mm -hmm. I, so I, I'll post a link to it. But in my article, I'm saying, well, here's the argument they made, here's sure. the argument they made. And I'm choosing what I think is most interesting and was it, uh, uh, what is irrelevant. But a different journalist might have looked at that exact same yeah, but, information and, and chosen different but things. But Robbie, isn't there a difference between, say, um, Edward Snowden or Chelsea, Chelsea Manning in their capacity, given you know, with the access that they have, looking through files and leaking what they think the public should know about the government's misdeeds across the, mm -hmm. the globe. And let's say 
the NSA itself deciding what documents it wants the public to know about. And when we have more skepticism <laughs> about the nature of what story the NSA is trying to tell. I mean, we know the story that also Chelsea Manning is trying to tell, but it is, isn't there something about the nature of it being a leak, a whistleblower report that's different than an organization kind of opening its doors the way that Elon Musk is the CEO of Twitter, is the institutional actor here who is opening the kabuki, sure, but he's still, as he's, he said himself, exposed to certain liabilities that are, of course, going to affect what disclosures are ultimately made. And should we be more skeptical about the nature of the story that's being told? Is, is Glenn right that he could be an unwitting participant in a kind of narrative that is not entirely accurate and that even very good journalists whose work I respect and who are reporting on things that I think are very noteworthy, like Lee Fong, like Matt Taibbi, might be unwittingly in the same situation. Are you saying, is that conceivable? Could that be happening? Yeah. And, yes. And, and should there be a, a kind of a reluctance to participate in that unless there is more transparency? I mean, everybody, I guess, has to make that decision for themselves. I, I, I would not make that decision. It, it depends. Um, I mean, also, the, the, the process here, like we're talking about emails, tons of them, mm -hmm. tons of them, that they it doesn't seem... Like you can do a search for, I think, specific keywords to find what you're looking for, mm -hmm. or maybe certain email addresses. Um, but there, there's so many. It's not. It's not quite the case that there's like just like a box of documents. And well, why don't they just publish all of it? It's so many. Well, well, no. But for example, you could disclose everything. Like what that Lee was is doing in my radar, for for example, yeah. or what what he said he's doing is he's asking, can you look for X thing? And then they're giving right. him all the documents they find that are responsive to X thing. It, Sounds like it's it's working like the FOIA process, although well, Twitter not, doesn't have the obligation the well, same way. Although the government tries to get on I, FOIA, I, all I the would time argue too. that I, even even respecting certain liability constraints from Twitter, things that could happen is publishing the search terms, publishing the number of hits that were responsive to the search terms, uh, publishing you know the the gap and number between the number of responsive hits and what was actually disclosed to Lee, having some kind of um, discovery record that explains why it was that certain documents were withheld, giving a reason. I mean, this is how you have to do it in civil litigation. You have to give a reason for why you haven't turned over certain documents. And there are, there are protected classes of documents that you don't have to disclose. And obviously, Elon Musk can just say, I don't want to disclose it, and that's fine. But at least that would give us a better sense of how much transparency there really is right now. And look, I, I'm not saying that I necessarily even agree wholly with Glenn here. I, someone asked me after I posted this clip yesterday whether or not I would facilitate one of these Twitter file drops, report on a Twitter file drop, if, if Elon Musk reached out to me and asked me. And I think at the end of the day, I probably would, in part because I would have access to some of the questions that I'm asking right now about how much transparency there really is. I would be able to design my search terms. I believe I would be able to report on my search terms. So I would say yes, contingent on whether or not I was in fact allowed to do all of those things. If I felt like unnecessary constraints were being put on me that put me in the position of only telling part of the story as I even saw it as a Twitter files journalist, then that would be a very different different situation. Yeah. I, I guess I don't have a lot of problem with what I've seen so far, and it's brought to light a lot of very interesting information, sure. a lot of information we didn't have. Um, the pressure campaign on uh, Twitter is a lot more vast um, than I would have even imagined. And uh, I, I think... Probably my number one quibble with it is just the format. <laughs> uh, <laughs> articles would have been better rather than having them rolled out on Twitter itself. Yeah. I guess I understand 
why I, I think Elon that's part of why that. I love Lee's uh, reporting and like got into Lee's reporting article. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's been a little bit, and and we've not known when they're going to be published, and if they said this is going to be part of a, a seven week series, and each one is coming. I mean, that's yeah. more convenient than happening. Friday or <laughs> late at night when I'm yeah. want to be checked out. But yeah. that's pretty. That's not really a criticism of the journalism. Sure. Being done. That's, uh, absolutely, it's something else. Yeah. So well, uh, you can listen to that full interview if you'd like over at uh, Bad Faith YouTube, and we'll have more rising for you right after this. A new monument dedicated to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King has become a source of mockery and criticism online after images showing some of the art's rather um, unflattering angles emerged. Named the Embrace, the Boston statue is intended to represent the intertwined arms of the late reverend and his wife. A cousin to the late Coretta Scott King told CNN the statue, quote, Looks like, it may, looks like a penis, excuse me, and is insulting to the black community. <laughs> it's so bad. It's horrifyingly bad. Okay, so there is one, the, the correct angle. And if you look at it from the correct angle, I still don't like it. I think it's not great art, but it, it looks not totally offensive. That angle is bad. <laughs> Every other angle, it looks, it, it's, it's kind of stunning how many inappropriate things it, it like mm -hmm. it, it 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 looks like a sex act being committed in some somehow, way somehow from every angle look i got to say there's almost a new level of artistry that has emerged i have a newfound respect <laughs> the longer we talk about this the longer the statue discourse goes on i'm increasingly respecting the uh, ab the artist's ability to toe the line between abstraction and realism such that it can be all things to all people as long as they are sexual in nature like, like what uh, i don't know if you watched glass onion what he says about the mona lisa how is she her smile looks different every time you behold her in that vein every time you look at this piece of art it is a new profane pornographic image jumping out into your eyeballs i mean look another part of the, the criticism was that this was supposed to be you know uh, a kind of commemoration of credit scott king's role in the movement which is often uh, for, you know, re mm -hmm. uh, relatable reasons, but, like, downplayed with respect to her husband and the fact that they chose to kind of do a disembodied part of her arm to commemorate her when she doesn't get any kind of other statuary, generally speaking, was disrespectful. I mean, I think all of those are, are fine like, arguments. could just be a sculpture mimicking the actual... The image is beautiful. It's it a is. nice image of them hugging. Add their freaking heads on the statue. <laughs> I, like, because where the arms end doesn't make any. That's what. That's, that's what's problem. giving you the uncanny valley. It's, they don't. The arms where the arms join each other. The absence of a head means you imagine other body parts that yes. join at places on the human body. Yes, and that's the that's the fundamental <laughs> that are held and pushed. Like this. <laughs> I mean, what was so kind of amazing about the story too is like, even though I wasn't watching it live, there's this moment when the when the sheet is taken away where you kind of can feel a collective. Oh, right. Is it just me that I'm seeing is this? It, and then you realize every single person every is thinking the same thing. Single person. Now, look, I, I saw a poll where someone was asking, "Should we just melt the thing down, um, or yes, just go with it?" I think now it's its own thing. Like I said, like now I've I've come full circle, and now I'm appreciating this as a different 
kind of artistic value. It's not commemorative. It does nothing to respect no. the memory. We should say that it was, a, I think, a $10 million uh, statue. It was $10 million uh, of city funds. Paid for by the art. taxpayers. I, I hope the taxpayers really feel like they got their <laughs> money's worth for this pornographic <laughs> art that's supposed to celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, what uh, are you going to do, Robbie? Cancel the statue? Are we so censorious that we can't have an abstract Whatever that is. In Boston, no, you're right Robin. that it's a meta thing now. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, it, yeah, it belongs in like a modern art, like a, a museum of bad modern art that's so bad it's good. Like that, it's, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. It's so bad it's good. It's like the room or something. Yeah. I mean, we should probably also talk. I mean, this artist, he is an artist. Um, I think we have a couple of uh, images of his other work. Uh, he has done some sculptural work. He's also done some, um, he's a black artist who does explore certain racial themes. There's an image, uh, that I saw, yeah, there of, um, kind of the juxtaposition of an NFL player and uh, someone working on a slave plantation. There's that bronze sculptural work that you can see has hints of the thing that got the thing. And then they got built in uh, the embrace. No, it kind of looks Commons. like the thing, the uh, the the that horror movie where like an alien or something. Then they, you know, the people they they're, it's the body horror where they start like turning into the blob or whatever it is. What is uh, that yeah. movie called? Is it the thing? That's what she, he looks a little like the, the Stranger Things like creatures. To be honest, <laughs> it looks, so many bad things it looks like aliens. It looks it looks like a lot of bad things. I will say. Let me, let me say this. I think there's yeah something... the thing the Antarctic. In Antarctica, the, the shapeshift of the John John Carpenter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that it tries something. You know, there was a, so the, you know the MLK statue here Super in DC. <laughs> you know the MLK statue here in DC. Mm-hmm. Um, people criticized it when it was built over by the reflecting pond. What do yeah. you call it? Tidal basin? Um, because they, people criticized it as being too austere. I remember visiting that when it opened years ago. Uh, I, I was you know in town to visit a friend who was here at law, in law school. And we stood by it and we, we, uh, you know, we assessed the criticism. It is kind of austere. I believe it's a, a Chinese American art, artist and people were upset about that. People joked that the, that the statue kind of looks like a cross between MLK and Chairman Mao. I mean, it's, it's, it's the style of mm-hmm. the, the thing that's kind of brutalist and like in a way that takes away a little bit yeah. from his facial features. But it's clearly MLK. It's nice noble. Statue. He's peering out over the water. It's a good photo op. You, it, it, in retrospect, it's looking pretty good. Well, compared to this, yeah. <laughs> but I will say, isn't there, isn't there something to be said for departing from just another statue of a guy or a woman in a commons? No. Don't don't <laughs> stick with the classic. Especially if you're supposed to honor a history. I mean, it feels inappropriate to his time period. To his, or, I, if it you know wasn't I mean? sexual, a, but it was still inscrutable, would you still have an issue with the statue? Would you still I mean, prefer? I don't care that. I have the, my issue is taxpayers having to pay for for publicly commissioned art. I don't really care that much. I just, I think it's ugly. I think it's very ugly. I do. And yeah. I don't think that I don't feel that way about all you know our our monuments and memorials here in D.C. Many of them are quite nice. Whatever you think of the people they represent, the Jefferson Memorial's very nice. The Lincoln mm-hmm. Memorial's very nice. I like to jog um, over there. They're right. They're great. They're pretty, and they're and they're respectful, and they're nice to look at, and well, people, and they're timeless. But let's, let's They've talk held about up. This. Will that hold? That's that but, hasn't held up a single day. But what day, about but. the non-neoclassical memorials? Because people were people objected to the Vietnam Memorial. They thought it was mm-hmm. too modern. It disrespectful the idea that it goes slants into the ground like that. You know, every people have had critique of, of everything that is not that was basically an abstract thing to try to represent, and I, I think it's. Fine. Um, 
But this was just supposed but to be people a picture at the time, of a person. People at the time, many people didn't yeah. like it. And all I'm saying well, is this could age, this could honestly draw millions in tourist revenue to Boston. Because <laughs> I got to say, next time I'm back in Boston visiting friends, going to a reunion, I'm going to the statue. And if you're a hot dog vendor or an ice cream vendor, you should post up right there because I'm coming <laughs> with a lot of other people. Poor choice of words. <laughs> boy, oh boy. I mean, endless delight. Endless entertainment. 10 out of 10 for me. I'm fully committed to liking this project now. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a kaleidoscope of horror, but um, you're right. It's more fun than, maybe it's more fun than just being another, another statue of a person. Yeah, let, let us know what you think in the comments. I'm dying to know. <laughs> we'll have look we'll, at it from all angles. All, See what you think. There's a top view that we didn't show, which is also a treat. Oh, I haven't seen the top view. <laughs> we have to stop. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back with uh, some actual serious news. I think, Brianna. Yeah, yeah. Very serious. Absolutely. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of this choice content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye, everybody. All right, Stay bye. safe out there. Mm. Wild world. <laughs>